0: Our second lesson for this Lord's Day comes from the Gospel according to Matthew. I invite you to turn to chapter 16, and we will be reading verses 13 through 20. And I invite you to listen once again to God's holy and inspired Word. And Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. And herein ends the reading of God's word to us this day. May all praise and honor and glory be to him and to him alone. Amen. Last week, we began a new sermon series on the church, and if you were not with us, then I want to encourage you to take time to listen online to that introduction, as well as the rationale we laid out for pursuing this study. Um, On a side note, if you have not yet discovered our weekly offerings on Apple Podcasts, that's always a good way to catch up. But in our study last week, we spent time in the Old Testament recognizing the church there in that vast assembly whom God rescued from the clutches of Pharaoh and then gathered at the foot of Mount Sinai. Of course, that was not the beginning, beginning of the church, for the genesis of the church is discovered in the mind of God before the foundation of the world through his sovereign election. But from our perspective, the manifestation of that divine initiative is seen in the call of Abraham and the promises that God made to him, blossoming into a considerable assembly in Egypt. And it was those descendants of Abraham whom God gathered at the base of Mount Sinai speaking to them, reminding them of His saving work, as well as their new identity as God's treasured possession and as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. As we know, God did not intend for Mount Sinai to be His dwelling place, but God led that assembly to the land that He had promised to Abraham to Jerusalem, to Mount Zion, where God's glory occupied first of all the portable tent of meeting until a more permanent temple was built by Solomon. And it was there that God agreed to dwell with the sons and daughters of Abraham as long as they obeyed his covenant. But trouble started almost immediately under King Solomon who failed to keep the covenant when he established places to worship foreign gods of his foreign wives. And then under the failed leadership of many of the kings who followed, the covenant that God made with Israel was repeatedly broken until God rejected them as his people and refused to be their God, preserving only a remnant in fulfillment of the promises that God had made to their forefathers. It was around this time then that prophetic words began to sound that pointed forward to one who would one day appear in whom the fulfillment of all God's promises and expectations would be satisfied. Out of the stump of Jesse, a branch would appear. A virgin would conceive and bear a son. A suffering servant would come and God would do a new thing. Now, we read a moment ago from the prophecy of Daniel, a passage of Scripture that is typically associated with the last days. Many Christians see that as visionary of the millennial kingdom. They believe Christ will establish at his second coming. But it is really something that we need to associate with Christ's first coming. When Jesus begins his ministry... Mark reports that Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. We need to realize that the kingdom of God is not to be understood in terms of geographical territory but rather as the unleashing of God's power to bring about His will. That is what is meant as the kingdom of God. As one commentator puts it, it's not so much His domain as His dominion. Not His realm, but His rule. And when Daniel receives this vision in the night, it is a revelation to him of a Son of Man in whom the dominion and glory of God resides, a dominion that is an everlasting dominion and a kingdom that will not be destroyed. Now we know that prophetic word applies to Jesus. So when Jesus steps onto the stage of human history, the king and his dominion have arrived. As the Christmas hymn, Silent Night, declares, Jesus, Lord, at thy birth. And when he begins his ministry, we see his dominion on full display. As the blind are given their sight, the deaf are made to hear, the tongues of the dumb are loosened, the lepers are cleansed, the lame are given to walk, the storms are stilled, and the dead are raised to life. Now, we have stated many times that such miraculous signs were intended to authenticate the message of the Lord. They were intended as heaven's seal of approval on the messenger and the message that he proclaimed. But they were also more than that. They were evidence to those with eyes to see that the king had arrived. And this was a display of the king's power and authority. It was to announce that the everlasting dominion of the Son of Man in Daniel's vision was now on the scene and that this display of power was child's play to him. You may remember that moment in Jesus' ministry... When he casts out a demon and those who opposed Jesus attempted to demonize Jesus before the people by claiming that Jesus was doing these miraculous signs by the power of the devil, Beelzebul. Well, Jesus counters that argument by declaring that a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. And then he says to his adversaries, if it is by the finger of God, that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. In other words, if I cast out demons by a mere wave of a finger, that should be a sign to you that all the power and authority of Almighty God is operating in your midst. Now bear in mind that this display of God's power is taking place in full view of the public. One of the reasons that massive crowds began to follow Jesus was because this display of God's power and authority was addictive. It was the most amazing thing to see. And people wanted to see more of it. And the more they saw, the more they began to speculate on Jesus' identity. Now that brings us to our text from Matthew's Gospel. Jesus asks his disciples what the word on the street is concerning his identity. Who do the people say the Son of Man is? The answers were focused on Jesus being a resurrected prophet. But when Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter gives the divinely inspired answer, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. In other words, Peter recognizes that Jesus is far more than a prophet of old. Peter recognizes Jesus as the one referred to in Daniel's vision. He is the one who is endowed with glory and dominion, whose kingdom will never be destroyed. He is the very Son of God. Now that affirmation of faith stood in stark contrast to those in Israel who should have recognized the Christ, but did not. Jesus says at one point, Woe to you, scribes! For you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. He says of the Pharisees, They sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach but do not practice. Peter's affirmation stood in contrast to those who took comfort in their genealogy. But Jesus told them that if they were truly the seed of Abraham, they would not be seeking to kill him. Jesus credits Peter's theological insight not to the fisherman's keen powers of deduction, but to the spiritual awakening of God the Father And it is upon this moment of divine revelation that Jesus then begins to talk about building his church. For this is exactly how Christ will build anew the people of God, by opening their eyes to see Jesus as the one whom God has sent as the only mediator between God and man. When Jesus declares to his disciple, you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He is not giving him some special designation apart from the other apostles, but he's indicating that they will be foundational in the spiritual construction project that is just beginning. They will have authority unlike others as indicated by the statement concerning the keys of the kingdom of heaven. They will serve in a significant role that will set the course for those who follow. And in this sense, Peter is a rock in the hands of the builder who is Jesus. Amos was one of the Old Testament prophets who forecast the destruction of Israel. But almost in the same breath, God revealed to him that a new day would eventually come. He says this, In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. So in this moment in Matthew's Gospel, we see Jesus announcing that He is assuming the responsibility of rebuilding the people of God, assembling the flock, not just from the descendants of Abraham, but from all the families of the earth, from among the Gentiles as well, all of whom will be bound to Christ through a spirit-induced recognition of Him as the Son of God. To underscore the point, about the apostles being the foundational stones to this spiritual house. Paul writes to the Ephesians, speaking about the marvelous thing that God has done in Christ to remove the wall of division between Jew and Gentile and made one new man. And then he speaks of this spiritual structure that Christ is building, declaring that it is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together, he says, into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now this is important as we consider the doctrine of the church. For we understand the important role that the apostles played the disciples who came to faith at Pentecost and in the days that followed were devoted we are told to four things Acts chapter 2 they were devoted to the apostles teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers And whenever a church describes itself as being apostolic, it is giving indication that they teach as faithfully as they can the same things that the first apostles were teaching because they know how fundamentally important that is. Now, when Jesus makes this declaration to Peter and the others that upon this rock he will build his church and all the rest, the verbs that are used there are all future active Indicatives. In other words, the reality is still somewhere in their future. And he then tells them to not reveal to others what the Father has just revealed to them because the hour has not yet come. Well, when would that hour be? We know from Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well in John chapter 4 that The two of them discussed the proper place to worship God. The woman was advocating that Mount Gerizim was a proper place to worship, but she recognized that the Jews insisted that Mount Zion was the only acceptable place. But since she perceived that Jesus was a prophet, she wanted to know what his opinion was on that. Well, what was Jesus' answer to her question? He said, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. And then he said, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Now, we know from our most recent study in the gospel according to John that throughout that gospel, The hour that Jesus spoke of was the hour of his death at Calvary. We also know that at the hour that Jesus surrendered his spirit into the hands of the Father, that the veil in the temple was rent asunder from top to bottom, indicating that animal sacrifices were no longer necessary, for the Son of God had offered a sacrifice on our behalf, In the only holy of holies which really mattered, which was heaven itself. So when Jesus indicates to the woman that in the very near future, people will neither worship God on Gerizim nor Zion, he was hinting at something entirely new. Edmund Clowney says this about it. What Jesus declared to the woman was not temple-less worship, It was worship at the true temple, pitched by God, not man. There, God her Father seeks her worship, not on the top of Gerizim or at the end of a dusty trail to Jerusalem, but at the feet of Jesus. Worship is in spirit. That is the spirit that Jesus himself gives, the water that is not from her well. Worship is also in truth. Not truth in the abstract, but truth in Jesus, the true revelation of the Father. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, if you will allow me, let's return for a moment to our text from last week. Where Peter wrote, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. You see, the new thing that Christ is doing in terms of building the church is completely centered on His redemptive work on Mount Zion. He's the perfect cornerstone. Every aspect of His life was perfectly lived in obedience to the Father. Every word that passed His lips was perfectly voiced to express the will of the Father. Every action that He took was perfectly performed to the praise of the Father. The death He died though shameful in the eyes of men, was perfectly acceptable to the Father, for God was able to pour all of the wrath and judgment that should have been ours onto the Son. And so now, every other stone that is laid in this spiritual house has been justified and is in perfect alignment with the Lord Jesus. Every other stone that is laid has responded in faith to Christ's invitation and has come to Him with empty hands. Every other stone that is laid has not made demands that they be the crowning touch at the top of the building because they've been humbled by seeing themselves as God sees them and they are grateful for even being chosen at all. And it is in this spiritual edifice that God has chosen to dwell in the praises of His people. Beloved, the church is the creation of God Himself. It is a design of His own making. And every living stone that is laid is one of His own choosing within every heart of every believer, there should exist a reservoir of gratitude for the display of love and grace extended towards us, as well as an eagerness to engage in holy service to Him. I pray that as we continue our study that we will come to an ever deeper understanding of these things, that our love for Christ as well as our love for His church, will grow more and more until we eagerly understand the importance of presenting our bodies to God as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to Him, which is our spiritual worship. Let me invite you to bow your heads with me for a moment that we might close in prayer.